So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, your host, Susan Pallister, and my special guest on today's show, Dan Lock-Wheaton. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to catch up with you again. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk about leading an engineering academy and obviously the importance of engineering and, and STEM subjects in the curriculum. So, Fantastic. okay, if we start then, could you just briefly go through and tell our listeners about your leadership journey, please? So I joined um, and became a teacher um, reluctantly, which I'm sure we'll get into um, as uh, as I get grilled quite rightly by Susan today. But, um, you know, I became a teacher back in 2004, um, but was very lucky to get picked up as part of the government's fast track to leadership scheme, which was an incentive back in 2005 where they identified that there was going to be this considerable number of head teachers that would be leaving the profession in around 2010 onwards and how did they seek to to fill that so I looked to apply for the government scheme and got picked up and then that sort of led me into my roles of leadership um, and also brought me to Birmingham I was previously working out in the leafy suburbs of Bromsgrove northern Worcestershire um, which I thought was of course was tough until I came into the inner city uh, and soon realized that actually somewhere not only had distinct challenges but somewhere that I relish absolutely love and and actually couldn't think about working anywhere else. You're now uh, the principal of Aston University Engineering Academy. Could you talk about its history, how and why it was set up and are there any other engineering academies in England? Yeah so um, I first heard about the idea of the Engineering Academy back in 2010 um, and it came about from what was then, obviously, a previous Secretary of State of Education, which was Lord Baker, um, and his partner, Ron Deering, who set out to say, well, hold on, we've got this big issue around the skills gap. And, and quite simply, we've been overtaken by countries such as Germany, Germany, Austria, even China and India, where engineering has really been a strong prevalence of their educational journey. And often now, when I talk, take parents around the school and, and grandparents, they'll say, oh, I did that when I was at school. And they're absolutely right, because we used to have technical schools in the UK and they disappeared at some point in the 60s and no one's quite sure why they disappeared and often people talk about typing schools and secretarial schools but there was really strong technical schools that led across the UK and actually post-war we actually established them in Germany and Austria and places like that but they seem to phase out as I say in the back of the 60s into the 70s but what employers sort of started to identify in the back of the 2000 onwards that with this increasing skills gap in the UK where students were leaving school maybe with academic knowledge around maths and physics but lacking some of the really clear engineering based skills both in terms of practical fabrication and manufacturing but also into design as well. So the aim was very simple at that point, um, was to start to bring back these technical schools. And Birmingham, as the epicentre of engineering in the UK, was identified as the best place to start with it. And thus Aston University was chosen to host the first one. And uh, it's a new build that started to get built in 2011. And at the time I was working um, over leading the sixth form at Great Bar School in Birmingham. And it clearly is a science teacher and a background. It became a really clear, exciting opportunity to move across here at that time as vice principal when this was a car park and have the unique opportunity as a leader to build a school literally from the car park um, car park up and then since then it's expanded across the country there's now around 42 UTCs um, engineering schools across the country um, and they've been in the press for a number of reasons lots of positives a few areas where initially they struggled with um, filling up in places um, initially where sometimes a little bit of hesitance between existing schools of how will you 
duties sit alongside the existing education? Where do they fit? Are they FE? Are they secondary? Where do they sit? Um, and what's happened over the last 10 years now, and it's quite exciting that we now, this, this year is our in September our 10th year, is we've seen that maturity of the programme and we've now seen that real establishment of not only where do UTC sit, but the outstanding destinations that our young people are going on to. And in fact, just yesterday, um, we had uh, many employers here as part of various different careers and apprenticeships week, as you're aware, um, that's going on. Obviously, this may go out at a different time, but when I'm talking, clearly apprenticeships week. And we've got students that left me and make me feel very old now, who left me four years ago, five years ago, who've not only gone through their degree, Agree are now working within those skill sectors that we were set out to create. So that's why uh, the Engineering Academy was created here in Birmingham first. And I'm very proud and very feel very privileged to have led it for over the last 10 years from day one. And is it quite difficult then to actually get a place at your school? Is it quite competitive now? Yeah, it is really competitive. We have two entry points. Um, it, we've recently, over the last couple of years, moved to year nine at 13. And that was identified that the original 14 to 19 model um, was quite restricted in the fact with students arriving at 14, it gave such a short time to upskill them before their GCSEs. It was actually a disadvantage to them. Right. So we now are point from 13. We only have a very small cohort in Birmingham. So we only have 81 students that start with us. And the students come from across the whole of Birmingham. OK, it really is. Um, far and wide and we've also seen quite a distinct change over the last um, the last four years we're now 50% female whereas um, into our into our lower school whereas previously at one point we're 100% male uh, and to around 90% so a huge amount of work's been done over the last five years not just by us but clearly by um, by employers and wider to really raise a profile of STEM among our young female um, population to really show them why this is a really attractive and really promising career for them Um, so that's a very competitive definitely at year nine and then at post 16 which is our big growth we you know we have over 500 students in our sixth form here um 250 into year 12 and again we take from across the whole of not only um birmingham but actually across the west midlands including solihull far north as tamworth um south starbridge etc so we have a lot of people who travel because they want to come to a specialist center for engineering for health and for business um, i suppose you've touched on it a little bit but can you just again just reiterate the importance of engineering and and STEM subjects in the curriculum and that focus on girls as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we talk about a skills agenda and we talk about specifically one of the things, first of all, to pick about engineering is that many people actually don't know what engineering is. And to use the word engineering, let alone within the encompassing word of STEM, actually clearly devalues the phenomenal diversity that exists. Um, and one of the things we're really proud of is that we often students come in here saying, you know, the number one often is I want to be um, an automotive engineer and work with cars. I want to be an aeronautical engineer and work with planes. And then you start opening them up to the nuances of what engineering is all about and the areas and the sectors. Um, you know, I've got um, a, an engineer, a young engineer now currently working on smart motorways. Um, you know, there's so many different areas of engineering they can go into um, that often they're not exposed to that for their normal schooling. And even at their age, they're not. And the same goes for um, for many of the girls. You know, there's often a preconceived um, idea that engineers are in boiler suits or it's dirty. You know, it's, it's a physical, actually the complete opposite. You know, engineering is really about applying absolutely high-tech science and mathematics into an applied and contextualized field but most importantly is problem solving and one of the key things we know about our phenomenal young females we have across the country and certainly in Birmingham 
is there are absolutely committed problem solvers. And the big, if I was giving any advice now, the number one area um, for engineering consideration is environmental engineering. You know, we, we look at COP26, we look at everything going on around everything about our environment. The answer to that lies absolutely in the scientists, but it lies in the application of engineers to solve our climate problems. And that's what we see from many of our girls coming through now. They're really fascinated with how they can take engineering and apply it into the climate environment or equally into the health environment as well. Uh, and there's a huge amount of technologies we know and developing around medical engineering as well. So it's, it's a lot broader uh, than people first led to believe. I just wondered whether the learning experience then for the students in an engineering academy in terms of the arts is perhaps not as valued or do you think that you do have a very broad and balanced curriculum as well. So just talk me through the learning experience. Yeah, you know, we, we, there's, there's a term we often hear now, which is STEAM, isn't it? And mm -hmm. we get all these different terms and they can sometimes make you cringe a little bit. Um, but yeah, art's got a fundamental a fundamental value. In fact, actually, we've actually in, reintroduced art as a separate curriculum this year uh, into our academy. We've always had art there and art's always, be, always been blended as part of design. But we've seen a really increased amount of demand for people going into architecture. And you can't go into architecture with a strong background in not just traditional, you know, in terms of design, but also into traditional drawing, into fine art, into pencil skills. So, yeah, fundamentally, um, and also more importantly, you know, art and the link into history, it's about understanding research, it's about understanding sources, it's understanding validity. So these are all really fundamental skills that any person going into any sector of engineering, health, business, any STEM area to draw upon. So it's really important. Now, with our year nine, we purposely keep our year nine really broad. We don't have, um, you know, it's not a three-year key stage four, uh, which we know government clearly don't like, but more importantly for us, it's about foundations and skill building i pay for every single student to do duke of edinburgh because frankly every child should do duke of edinburgh for free that's embedded we do finance courses we do design courses and also we introduce them to computer-aided design um, you know um, in terms of design on the computer using software very very early and in actual fact that's one of the key differentiators we see with students leaving the engineering academy is what they can do in terms of design 3D design, um, rendering, you know, I look at stuff they produce and I presume it's a photograph and they say, no, I've designed this on a computer. Um, it's absolutely incredible. In fact, they use the technologies. I would use email or just like we're using Zoom right now. So I think it's that ability to upskill them. So at such a young age, accelerates them in terms of their career as well. And are your courses more focused on doing so this idea about discovery learning and and working together and teamwork and entrepreneurship have you gone down that route as well we do a blended approach so we do both i think there's sometimes a little bit of misconception and this comes out around utc sometimes that you know engineering is about your hands so if you're good with your hands i'll go and do engineering um, you know, for some of the technical skills and some of the craft level, absolutely. But in reality, engineering is about very, very high level maths, very, very high level science. So it's got to have that rigor in terms of academic um, understanding and knowledge behind it. That's really important. And we do that through the traditional method of A-levels or through our vocational courses, BBTECs, or as we're developing now into T-levels. But separate to that, you're absolutely right. Those fundamental skills, those employability skills have to permeate through the curriculum. So we use, um, 
Um, we have our seven R's, which are built on the CBI's readiness to work attributes. So things like readiness in there, responsibility, being a role model, reciprocity, understanding how you work around other people. And of course, that links into some of the key employabilities and career-based skills as well. Um, and it's understanding that students get to voc you, you'd be advocacies in terms of how they speak, who they meet with, dealing with different stakeholders. And dealing with real-world projects is absolutely vital for several reasons. One, it becomes very tangible for the students to work on as a group. But by making it real, rather than the classic, this is something that an exam board has made up, it gives the students that incentive and motivation to do it, but it also gives them credibility. So when they're going off for those interviews, they're going off for the really top degrees or going off the really top apprenticeships. They're not sat there saying, this is something I played on at school. They're saying, here is a real project that was set by an employer. So for example, we have a lighting design project set by an employer in London. The students go away, meet the design brief, develop their portfolio, present that portfolio back. And that is no different than that employer would see from a professional that's been doing it for 10 years or 20 years and thus it allows the students at 18 19 to be competing on the same level as someone who's been working in industry for for multiple years as well so it's really important those projects are vital and, the, and then the last sort of in the triangle for that is the employer um, and that, that's what makes university technical college and engineering colleges so different is we're sponsored by employers and employers are in very regularly they qa what we do as part of our curriculum but they spend a lot of time with the students helping develop their skills and ultimately this allows this huge pathway through for those students, a pipeline, a talent pipeline into the employers as well through things like degree apprenticeships or from graduate courses after university. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Are you able to say who some of the sponsors are? Yeah, we've got we've got you know huge wealth of sponsors and obviously principals that we sit and work with. So you know to name a couple of the few. So you know, there's obviously clearly in Birmingham one of our biggest sectors is around infrastructure. Um, things like HS2 are one of our key principal sponsors, as are Jacobs Engineering, which are now one of the largest engineering companies in the world. And we have huge you know huge companies like that, which have head head offices in Birmingham, things like Amy Kundals, etc., all working in similar type of fields. But actually, for us, one of the most important partnerships is with the huge number of small manufacturing and enterprise companies, SMEs that exist around Birmingham. You know, we work with things like InfoSkills and RSS and companies which are working on different, very specific sections. And actually what works really well with them is we can really tailor what their needs are. So they're saying, actually, we've got a company who's, I've come to see as an SME where their average workforce is around 50 to 60 years old. So actually already the, 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 um, the MD and the CEO are all going, hold on, in five years time, I could have a significant amount of my workforce leaving and I'm not bringing it at the bottom. And often sometimes they're in sectors where they're not the most, they're not the, you know, the, J, the JLRs, they're not the, you know, the aeronautical engineer ones, but actually these are fundamentally really vital engineering um, areas to work in as well. So we work very closely with those sponsors to work with them to sort of see how we can plug into their skills and need both over the next two, three, five and 10 years as well. And what about partnership links with companies abroad? Because I remember many years ago hosting for you a, a group of, I think, principals and engineers who came around, and I think they were from Austria or yeah. Germany or, or Europe. Have you still got those links despite Brexit. Yeah, we have. Obviously, we've got Brexit and then something called COVID that's obviously uh, put a few challenges in the middle of it. But no, we're very delighted to be working with, it's Aust you're absolutely right, and very good memory there, Susan, of <laughs> um, of Austria, which is which is um, the HTLs. And the HTLs are, again, as I said at my start of, um, of, of this get-together, is the fact that, you know, we as the UK in the 60s, sort of spread, 50s and 60s, spread this into Germany, and they carried on, our counterparts over there. Um, and there, you know, the my equivalent 
equivalent school over there, you're talking 5,000 students going into this technical school. You know, it's a huge development through of how they work into engineering. So yes, we have those partnerships. Um, we were very lucky over just before COVID, we, have, uh, we had the very first um, A-level or level three, I should say, with BTEC. Um, gap year where students could actually do a sandwich course so they came to us to year 12 we then sent five students to go and live in Austria for a year and study their year 13 in Austria before coming back and completing their year 14 here in in the UK with us as well and we're just about to relaunch that again under the Turing scheme now as it's moved to um, once we come out of post-covid as well and every year we have students come from Austria who live in Birmingham and come and study with us as well. So it's a huge opportunity to, again, especially for inner city Birmingham students to have that experience is life-changing. What about links with primary schools, Stan? Have you got any direct group of schools that you work with? Because what you're doing is absolutely fantastic and it's really innovative and it's exciting. And it's just, do you sort of work with particular groups of primary schools? Yeah, absolutely. And we and more importantly, we, we remain open to work of any any primary yeah. school at any yeah. point, because the evidence shows very clearly that actually by year six, um, and it used to be year eight, but it's gone, it's gone even earlier. By year six, students have already started to be signposted, and more importantly, have already started to be narrowed down in their view, you know, especially with gender-based stereotype of views of, you know, I, I'm a girl, therefore I'm going to go on to do this, um, or I'm a boy, I'm going to go in this direction. And especially with girls and STEM, and, the, and if you look at the evidence coming out of, for example, WISE as an organisation, it shows that year five and year six are your most crucial years for really building upon that enthusiasm, that love of maths, that love of science that many of the girls have, and developing their understanding of where that can take them in the future. So yeah, it's absolutely paramount. Um, I know, you know, clearly, again, with COVID, we, we've removed things online, we share a lot of information, but, you know, we will go out and host sessions, or we bring people in as well. We've got lots of facilities here, um, just to get students to come in and ultimately, come and have a go and get really infused and whether that's things like our, our racing car simulation stuff or whether it's to do with um, you know our rocket school stuff we've got or even down to our our flight simulators and the work we work with the RAF very closely and our build a plane so there's lots of things that we, we like to work with primary schools on as well. We do summer schools as well. Yeah, we do. And in fact, one of the biggest areas we've been working is around um, our work with the military. So we're very fortunate, going back to our employers, one of our big, my biggest sponsors is the military through the RAF, who sponsor my cadet service. And I've got over 120 um, RAF cadets um, based here at the academy. I've also got now 30 Royal College and Nursing cadets and 30 police cadets as well. So the way we work the cadet services within our, again, our project time, but within that, students are doing a huge amount of different projects. And one of them, for example, is they're actually building a plane. Um, this is their second plane. The first plane they built finished last year. We actually built it in the school to the point that it got so big, we struggled to get it out of the school. Uh, and I'm delighted now to say I've got a new classroom over at Cosford. So every week, my students go across and work at Cosford and build the plane. And we do that part of summer school as well. And as well as then our external summer schools, which we host for other schools, but also then for students coming into the academy, we host that at the university and students participate in STEM-based research and courses and workshops at the university prior to coming here as well. So is this is this plane sustainable then, Dan? 
Well, the last one was very sustainable because it was literally made out of um, very lightweight aluminium and, and fabric. And I must admit, when I was put forward as the first person to test it, I was feeling a little bit um, little bit um, worried about it. No, no. Um, yeah, very much so. Two-seater, you know, 150 mile an hour plane. I think, you know, ultimately, you've got children there who are, I say children because they start off, they are children. And when they go off to become, you know, their interviews for college, for apprenticeships, and they're saying, I'm working on a plane. And that person says, do you mean like a glider? or a throw plane no no a full-size plane FIA approved you know, that's the difference isn't it it's real world contextualized projects and it's life-changing and we've got phenomenal case studies of students who have been you know um, disadvantaged or have been you know really put off going to school who've come in who've been really engaged by this type of process and are now going on to study this at university and into degree apprenticeship so it really does change lives yeah. getting involved with the STEM agenda. Incredible now I want to turn the conversation round to you, Dan. You're not going to escape. <laughs> I was trying to. Keep talking enough, I can escape it. <laughs> so, obviously, you're involved in lots of innovative initiatives within the city of Birmingham. Some of them are really pivotal to education, uh, training teachers, obviously career-focused organisations. And I just wanted you to choose one of them and explain what it is you do and why you became involved in it. So the one I'd choose probably is the Birmingham um, Careers Hub, which I chair the school's advisory board as part of that. Um, and absolutely, you know, running a school is not easy. Running a school through COVID is very much not easy. And it's often a question, you know, why do you go and do this extra stuff as well? You know, is it a benefit to the school? Of course it is. But more importantly, it's about supporting all schools across Birmingham to look at the role of careers because, you know, what's been proven absolutely, not only through the UTCs and our model, but been proven and demonstrated through COVID as well, is that the role of careers-based education within a school is life-changing to young people. You know, careers should not be something, and I know historically um, from my own background was, you know, you go and get in year 11, you might have, you know, your half an hour careers interview with your careers one to sit down and you might say, oh, I want to be a footballer and they might give you a leaflet, you know, and I know I'm disengaging about the, the, a long history of careers, but it's got to be embedded in everything we do and ultimately it comes down to a very strong set of standards being the, Gats the, the, um, the Gatsby benchmarks. And the role of the Careers Hub is clearly to support schools with how they engage with the Gatsby benchmarks and how do we look at supporting that really embedded careers-based learning. And yes, of course, that includes things like your work experience, that includes things like your careers events and your careers advice and guidance. But for me, it also includes how we can really embed work-related learning and also the areas where, I'll be honest, as school leaders and schools, we're often a little bit less familiar with things such as apprenticeships, things such as traineeships, things such as internships, all these all these ships that um, acronyms that sit out there. But often we're a little bit traditional in school. Students come into us, we do the GCSEs, we might do the A-levels, they go off to university, or they may consider such things as an apprentice. But actually, how do we really work with internships? How do we work with traineeships? How do we give these opportunities to students to redevelop? And how do we bring some of that even into their curriculum. So actually alongside their A-levels or their vocational courses, they could be doing these enhanced work placements. Now, clearly the new T-levels in the future coming, which have obviously clearly all arrived in some cases now, are trying to embed some of that practice in, but that's clearly based on really fundamental best practice that we can do from that. So I really feel very privileged to be part of that. I get to work with fantastic schools. I get to work with fantastic head teachers as part of that project. It makes me a better head. It makes my school better because I learn from them and that best practice. 
but it also helps me to support a wider body of students across the city as well, which probably stems all the way back to our original ISSP days way back in, in 2008, Susan. Yeah, long time ago. Long time ago, feeling um, old now. I'm going to take you back even further. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> now, um, it, uh, the regular listeners to my podcast know that I always have a, um, a, a special question at the end for my guests, just to challenge them. And yours is, I shall read it out to you. Uh, I want you to take you back to 2002, to South Africa, to your time as a great white shark marine researcher and filmmaker. Okay, fantastic that, you know, when I see that, just brilliant. But the question is this, what would Dan Lot Wheaton circa 2002 say to Dan Lot Wheaton in 2022? Over to you, Dan. Wow, I said it was it was a mind question, wasn't it? To a uh, mind blowing question. I think it's a very good question. I've given it some thought. Um, one of the things, I suppose, at that time was clearly is my background in marine biology and filmmaking, and was the passion about seeing the world. Um, and I suppose, in some way, I suppose again linked to marine biology and environmental, wanting to make a difference. So I think my first thing would be to say that first of all, you know, through my teaching um, and obviously through work with with, with schools across Birmingham. I've been able to travel the world with children, uh, young people um, through various different school based schemes, um, Honduras and other different things and actually to fulfill not only my own wishes and dreams, actually, but realise that actually you're educating the next generation to go through that. And I think the changing the world and sort of having that real philosophy in terms of wanting to make an impact, realising that there's no better place to do that than that's been in education. Um, there's no way I could have predicted circa 2002 where I'd be, um, how I'd move through my career and, and the leadership of where I am now. Um, I think I would be um, proud of obviously what I've achieved and where I've gone. But more importantly, is that ability to understand that um, actually you have you can have such a wider influence. And I was quite, I'll be honest, I was quite reticent about going into teaching uh, and thinking, you know, should you do that? There's other opportunities, but realizing actually it's not just a vocation. Um, it really is the opportunity of making life-changing opportunities to far wider than just yourself. Uh, and I don't regret a moment of it. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm going to ask you one more question. Where are you going to be, Dan, in say 10 years time? Where would you like to be? What would you like to be doing? Well, it's an interesting one because I, I, I'm, I'm always a dreamer. I sit there and I remember, I think maybe I'll take it back myself. I think it was, for me, it was my first day sat at, um, sat here becoming an NQT. And I sat in the um, staff room and got welcomed to the school. And it was the head teacher's briefing. And at that point, as an NQT back in 2003, was I thought, that's the job that I want. I want to be a head teacher. Um, and, and that was weird to have that for my very first day um, there and the sort of move, move through on that career. And, and I'm here and I'm doing the job I absolutely love. So it's very hard to think, do I want to do anything different? Um, but I enjoy that influence. I really like helping people. I like the opportunities, of course, helping other schools, which I do now. And there's the trust stuff as well. Um, I'll be honest, I am so frustrated with what's going on politically at the moment. Um, I cannot help but want to say I'd love to get in there um, and get more involved in, uh, in, in politics and with Whitehall and say, come on let's get this sorted because uh without bringing politics into your show susan um uh, which will take us a very long time i do think there's the opportunity to try and start to think what can we make a difference and that next stage as well so uh, maybe some lofty ambitions there but who knows i i shall be back in 10 years to see if you've <laughs> i've no doubt you will be of state for education <laughs> or something along those lines perhaps maybe we, we can have we can have a chat over a cheese and wine party so that's fine <laughs> dan can i just say 
Thank you ever so much for joining me today. Uh, It's been wonderful catching up with you and just inspirational, just listening to you talk. And you clearly have made a difference to so many people, so many young people and teachers as well. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.